0: Tonight we begin our study at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, which is a fascinating chapter that I don't believe we're going to complete the entire chapter tonight. There's so much in it that we'll have to leave some for the next time we're together. But let's just begin right off here with verses 1 and 2. Paul, uh, already having instructed the Thessalonian Christians on many practical points of their Christian life, in particular how they should endure affliction and suffering in their Christian life, is now going to give them some very pointed moral instruction in their life, how they should live their Christian life in a moral sense. So verses 1 and 2, Finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul here is just starting The beginning of chapter 4, although we remind ourselves Paul didn't write in chapter and verse, the chapter and verse divisions were made much later. Uh, But Paul is just a little bit more than halfway through his letter, and he's already saying finally. You shouldn't get the idea that he's sort of like a preacher who says finally about halfway through his message and doesn't really intend on ending it anytime soon. No, he's just sort of transitioning into the closing section of the letter with very much practical instruction on how God wants his people to live. And you have to be impressed with the way he starts out here in verse 1. We urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. You see, Paul was thankful for the growth that he saw in the Thessalonian Christians, but he still looked for them to abound more and more in what? In a walk that would please God. First of all, it's helpful for us to just consider that phrase, abound more and more. That tells us that Christian maturity is is never finished on this side of eternity. No matter how far you've come as a Christian in love and in holiness, and maybe you've come a long way, maybe you haven't, but no matter how far you've gone, you can still abound more and more. It's a very dangerous attitude that is sometimes adopted by those who, who have served the Lord for a very long time, that they begin to feel that they sort of achieved a certain level in their Christian life, and now their, their purpose or their goal in their Christian life is to maintain that level. God doesn't want you to maintain the spiritual depth or the spiritual level that you're at. He wants you to abound more and more. Again, notice here, just as you received from us, he says in verse 1. Now, what Paul will write in the following verses was nothing new to the Thessalonians. In the few weeks that he was with them, and we remind ourselves if we have every time we've got together here to study this letter of 1 Thessalonians, when Paul planted the church in Thessalonica, he started it after being there just a few weeks among them. He was there maybe the span over three weeks time in Thessalonica, having started the church, and then he was pressured out of the city by an angry mob. But in those few weeks that he was with them, he instructed them in basic matters of Christian morality. But Paul knew that it was important to teach new believers in these things. And in what things? Well, as he says here, how you ought to walk and to please God. You see, Paul took it for granted that the Thessalonians understood that the purpose of their walk, and we understand what they mean like that. He's not talking about the way that they literally walk down the street. He's using walk as it's used very often in the scriptures as sort of a a picture, a word picture for the manner in which you conduct your life. That the purpose of their walk, their manner of living was to please God and not themselves. Now, Now when the Christian has this basic understanding the following instruction regarding biblical morality makes sense. When we understand that the purpose of our life is to please God That's what we should be doing with our lives. Well, then it's very easy for us to say, okay, God, how do you want me to please you? And to just follow it that way. But if you don't have that fundamental understanding, if you don't really believe that the purpose of your life is to please God, then you're constantly going to be battling with God over his commandments. So he says there in verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Whoa, that's pretty heavy right there, isn't it? These were not suggestions from the pen of Paul. These are not five of Paul's helpful hints for, you know, a happy, your life in Jesus or something like that. These are commandments from the Lord Jesus and they must be received that way. So what's he going to get out here? Well, look, starting here at verse three, all the way through the middle of verse six, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Now, do you notice what Paul says here? First, he begins verse 3 by saying, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he goes on to talk about what is the will of God in their life? That they be sanctified in their sexual morality. It's important for us to understand that Paul gave these commands to a first century Roman culture that was totally immersed in sexual immorality. Now, now we take a look at modern Western culture today, and we can think that in, as far as sexual morality goes, it's decadent, right? It, it's very easy to think that. What, what I just want to remind you is that it's probably not as bad or it's probably about as bad as it was in Paul's day. The the, the kind of sexual immorality that that permeates our culture is nothing new in society. Now, it, it would be new to people who lived perhaps 50 years ago or 100 years ago, but it wasn't new to people in Paul's day. At this time in the Roman Empire, when Paul wrote, chastity and sexual purity were almost unknown virtues. Nevertheless, Christians were to take their standards of sexual morality from God and not from the culture. In other words, Paul says, this is the commandment of God. I don't care what other people do. I don't care what the society or the culture accepts as normal. I don't care if people think you're strange or you're weird for following this. This is the commandment of God. Let me tell you, to live with a Christian standard of morality in the Roman Empire, at the time Paul wrote this, meant that you were swimming against the stream, so to speak. The whole culture was flowing. The whole current of society was moving in one direction and you were fighting against it. The the ancient writer Demosthenes expressed the general amoral view of sex in the ancient Roman Empire. This is what he said. He said, we keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body. And we keep wives for the faithful guardianship of our homes. That was just fact of life. That's how society was ordered in the Roman Empire and nobody saw anything wrong with it. So Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. I find it very interesting that sometimes Christians really are interested in what the will of God is for their life. And very rarely do they mean it in these terms, right? Oh Lord, I just want to know your will. Well, let's start right here. This is the will of God for your life. Are are you following what he says is is his will for your life right here? Then maybe he'll start showing you more and more of his will. But the will of God for your life is your sanctification. Now, do you understand what the idea of sanctification is? It means to be set apart. And God wants us to be set apart from a godless culture and from the sexual immorality that marks that godless culture. If our sexual behavior is no different than, look at it here, than the Gentiles who do not know God, as he mentions in verse 5. If our sexual conduct as Christians, is no different than the godless culture around us, then we're not sanctified. We're not set apart by having a different morality when it comes to sex. I think it's very interesting that Paul makes a contrast here. If you notice verse 5, where he says, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's as if Paul says, listen, we don't expect those who do not know God to live this way. They don't have the spiritual resources for putting the flesh under subjugation to the spirit that the believer has. They are not born again and indwelt by the spirit of God. But you, you believer, you're different. And so you should not live the way that the culture does around you. Instead, simply, as he says right here in verse three, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, we live differently than the world does when we abstain from sexual immorality. Now, it's important for us to understand what Paul's saying here. You can understand it by doing just a little bit of word study for the word in the ancient Greek language that Paul wrote in that's translated for us here, sexual immorality. It's one Greek word, and basically it's the Greek word pornea. Now, that actually is a very broad word referring to any kind of sexual relationship outside of the marriage covenant. Now, the older King James Version, you know, I teach here from the new King James Version, which I prefer as a translation. I don't think that it's the, you know, the ultimate translation and that it could never be made better or anything like that. But all in all, I think it's, it's the best one that I like to teach from. It translates it here, sexual immorality. If you go back to the older King James Version, it translates the the phrase sexual immorality with the word fornication. But again, the idea is the same. The word is used here in a comprehensive way to refer to every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse. It's a broad definition that, that includes all types of sexual sins. Now, this is what I'm trying to get at here. The broad nature of the word pornea shows that it is not enough to simply say, I have not had sexual intercourse with somebody who is not my spouse. All sexual behavior outside of the marriage covenant is sin. Now, I know that, you know, this is a Bible study and, you know, it's something sacred and we don't want to speak in a crass way but I, I think things just need to be addressed when you're speaking very frankly about this that it's not merely refer- referring to sexual intercourse outside of the marriage government but this would include such things as sexual conduct between unmarried people that doesn't even include sexual intercourse now, God grants great sexual liberty in the marriage relationship. Hebrews 13, verse 4 says that the marriage bed is undefiled. But Satan's not very subtle strategy is often to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of marriage and to discourage sex within the marriage. But again, we have the commandment from God here. All sexual behavior outside of the marriage covenant is sin. Several years ago, a very prominent political leader in the United States uh, was involved in a big scandal b- because he had insisted that even though he had had a type of sexual relationship with somebody, uh, a relationship involving oral sex, that it was not adultery, it was not you know, sin in this way. Let me just say, from a biblical perspective, he was completely wrong. No, I can't argue from a political perspective or from a legal perspective. That, that's out of my expertise, but I can tell you from a biblical perspective, oral sex outside of marriage falls into this definition of pornea, sexual immorality. It's very important for us to understand that this is a prohibition of all kinds of sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant, Instead, as he says here in verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. You see, we live differently than the world does when we possess our body in sanctification and in honor. I want you to notice this. Immorality, or if you want to say pornea, sexual immorality, as he mentioned in verse 3, immorality is the opposite of honor. Because immorality degrades and it debases the self. Those who do not restrain their sexual desires act more like animals than humans. Because what they simply do is they follow every impulse without restraint. Now think about this soberly. Do do you really think that you or I or anybody has the right before God or before our society to follow every impulse that comes to us. Of course we don't. Now, an animal does, right? That's what a dog does. That's what a cat does. They feel the impulse and they'll do it. But no, that's not the way it is for a human being, especially, as Paul says here, for somebody who's a Christian. And this phrase here, where he says that each of you should know, it indicates that Paul spelled this out to the individuals in the church. The same moral standards hold for us all. Now, he says, going on here into verse 5, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You, You see, this plainly means, again, that the sexual conduct of Christians should be different than the prevailing permissiveness of the day. And you have to say that one of the most discouraging things about the Christian landscape today is to be able to say that the the sexual conduct of Christians is not radically different than the sexual conduct of non-Christians. You know, we we would hope that it would be different among our own circle, but all too often it's not. We, We need to have a biblical focus here. You see, the Gentiles served God's who, who were sort of the, um, the projection of their own ambitions. The Gentiles couldn't say, don't be sexually immoral like Zeus, because Zeus was sexually immoral. And, and all the pantheon of their gods, all of those myths, all of those legends, so many of them come back to sometimes very crude and gross sexual immorality on behalf of these, these gods. But yet it's different for the believer in Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, it's so different. If you notice what he says here, uh, at the beginning part of verse six, he says that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Now think about this. When we are sexually immoral, we take advantage of and defraud others and we cheat them in greater ways than we can ever imagine. Now think of the sin of the adulterer. The adulterer defrauds his mate and his children. The fornicator defrauds his future mate and children. And they both defraud their illicit partner. You see, it's very important for us to understand that unlawful, unbiblical, ungodly sexual relationships between people It's stealing. I find it very interesting in Leviticus chapter 18, a chapter where God instructs Israel on the matters of sexual morality, that the idea is given over and over again that you may not... This is how it phrases it. I find it very interesting how it phrases it in Leviticus 18. It says that you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife or this person or that person. The idea is that there's only one person for whom you can uncover their nakedness, and that's your husband or your wife. The idea is that their nakedness belongs to you. The nakedness of no one else does. And it's a violation of God's law for them to give their nakedness to anyone else or for anyone else to take it. It's defrauding your brother. You could say this a failure to observe sexual morality, biblical sexual morality. It's stealing. It's taking what does not belong to you. Well, we're to have a different attitude as believers. And I find it very interesting. And This is why I stopped in the middle of verse 6. You know, I don't often do that. Usually we're going to the end of verses. But I stopped in the middle of verse 6 because in the middle of verse 6, he begins with the first of four reasons Why believers should observe this biblical standard of sexual morality. And I'm very happy that God does this. Because first of all, wouldn't we say that God has every right to just say, hey, I command you to do this and don't ask the reasons why. God has every right to do that. He's God, we're not. He he could stand back up on his throne in heaven, behind the clouds of glory and just say, you don't need an explanation, you just do it because I said to do it. I mean, after all, that's what we as parents sometimes say to our children. God has the right to say it to us, but I find it fascinating that so often, especially in these areas where it's difficult for us to obey God, why God gives us reasons why we should do this. And believe me, I I think he should give us reasons because I think we need them. I think we need to soberly consider them. You know, sometimes I think, and I've thought about this, I think, Lord, why have you made it so difficult for the human being to observe these standards of sexual morality. It, it, it seems wrong, God, that, that the human being would be engineered with, with these physical desires, and yet you, you seem to narrowly channel how they should be expressed. You, you should have either broadened the channel or lessened the inherent desire. Why did you do it that way? And then I remember reflecting upon it once. It was from a Bible study that a friend of mine taught, and he didn't say it this way exactly, but it sort of triggered the thought. This this friend of mine, Pastor Rob McCoy, from the Calvary Chapel in Thousand Oaks, he, he was teaching something that just sort of clicked in my mind, that no, wait a minute. What God has done is he's given us something that we can lay down before him that's precious to us. It costs us something to deny these desires that we feel and to live in this biblical way. It costs us something, but might I say, it won't kill you, right? now, It's not as if God said, if you really love me, you'll never drink water until you're married. you die of thirst. It's not as if God said, if you really love me, my command is you'll never eat food until you're married. No, that wouldn't work either. But no, God has put this powerful instinct, this powerful inclination within men and women, but commanded it to be expressed in a fairly narrow way because it's something that is precious and costly for us to do that we can lay down before him. But honestly, it it will not kill us to do it. And then I say, Lord, you have engineered this in an intelligent way. And so he goes on to give these reasons, okay? Beginning here now in the middle of verse 6, the first of four reasons for this command. First of all, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. This is the first of the four reasons for sexual purity. We can trust that God will punish sexual immorality. I think it's commonly believed among people that this is a sin that at least potentially someone can get away with that it can be undiscovered and perhaps you escape the penalty of it. But let me tell you that there is no getting away from the penalty. There is no getting away from the penalty in some way, even if that penalty is just the spiritual difficulties that you face and the spiritual uh, trauma that is inflicted upon you and those close to you. The Lord is avenger of all such. Here it is. You won't get away from it. You won't get away from the penalty. Number two, the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, verse seven, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. The second reason why Christians should be sexually pure is because of our call. We're called not to uncleanness, but unto holiness. Therefore, sexual immorality is simply inconsistent with who we are in Jesus Christ. That's not you anymore. One of the great stories from uh, church history, you know, one of these little anecdotes about the life of a great Christian uh, surrounds the life of a man named uh, Augustine, who was one of the great theologians of the early church. You know, he lived around the year 400, a little bit before and a little bit after, but in that general era. And Augustine was a great philosopher and a great thinker before he came to Christianity. But one of the things that prevented him from becoming a Christian What was he he really didn't know if he could live up to the biblical standards of sexual morality. And this was a great struggle for him. But he, he finally was persuaded. The Holy Spirit really got a hold of his heart and he gave his life to Jesus Christ and he was converted. Well, one day he was walking down the street and who should he see coming down the street on the other side? One of his old girlfriends, you know, apparently one of his pretty old girlfriends. And she would love to get back together with Augustine for, you know, some season of pleasure or something. And she ran up to him and she said, Augustine, it's me. And and he turned around and and he started walking away very fastly, virtually running. And she started following after him and said, Augustine, don't you know who I am? It's me. And you know what his response was? He said, it's not me anymore. (laughs) In other words... That, that man that you used to know, he's a different man now. He's got a different call on his life. God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. And this um, call to this high sexual morality is consistent with who we are in Jesus Christ. Paul developed... The same line of thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, concluding with the idea where he says that you should glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Who does your body belong to? Well, it belongs to God. And so it's simply not fitting for you to use it in a sexually immoral way. That's the second reason. The third reason, it's contained right here in verse 8. He says, therefore... He who rejects this does not reject man, but God. The third reason for sexual purity is that to reject God's call to sexual purity is not rejecting man, but rejecting God himself. You see, despite the petty ways that we try to rationalize sexual immorality, we still reject God when we sin that way. Now, Paul's very strong command here did not seem to come because the Thessalonians were deep in sin. I want you to notice no specific sin is mentioned. It seems that this perhaps was meant to prevent sin rather than to rebuke sin in light of the prevailing low standards in their society and because of the very um, powerful, seductive strength of sexual immorality. Now, the fourth reason, it's contained right there in verse 8, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. That's the fourth of the four reasons. We have been given the Holy Spirit who empowers the willing, trusting Christian to overcome sexual sin. By his Spirit, God has given us the resources for victory. We are responsible for using those resources. So you have to say This passage, just in the first eight verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is one of the most clear and direct and challenging passages in the entire Bible on this issue of sexual morality. And listen, I, I, I have to say, you know and I know this is a great challenge for our generation of Christians. It really is. You know, in some places in the world, the great challenge for Christians is to live without denying Jesus Christ. or They they live under great persecution, right? And so they have to stand strong against threatenings of beatings or or torture or worse. Uh, Other places of Christians have to deal with other challenges. Wouldn't you have to say that at this time in, in the Western world, one of the ways that we are called to give testimony and witness to Jesus Christ is to simply do what the Bible says here, is to live in this sexually moral way. But you know, anytime you talk about this, it's also worthy just to mention, and I'll say this in conclusion before we move on to verse 9. You don't have to talk to many people until you talk to somebody who, who is very aware of their own failures to keep this command. So what do you do then? Well, listen, the, the bottom line is that you come to a God who is rich in forgiveness, you confess your sin, you turn your back upon it, you flee youthful lusts, as Paul said, don't put yourself in an environment where you can even be tempted by such youthful lust, and you determine before the Lord that you're going to walk the way that the Bible says you should walk. Don't let your past failures tell you that God cannot give you the victory in these things. That's a lie from the devil. Instead, Trust in the power of his Holy Spirit. I love how he ended that in verse 8. Who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Hasn't he given you the Holy Spirit? Don't you have the Spirit of God flowing in power in your life? If not, why not? And if you do, then certainly you have the spiritual resources to live and to carry out this very difficult command in our present generation. Now, Paul doesn't want anybody to think That the Christian life begins and ends with sexual morality. Of course, it's a very important aspect, particularly in our present generation. But that's not all there is. Look at what he says here in verses 9 and 10. He says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. You see, these principles regarding brotherly love and just the way that Christians should get along with one another, these were so basic that Paul knew that they were obvious to the Thessalonian Christians. The Thessalonians were taught by God to love one another. I love how he states that in verse 9. Isn't that true? Doesn't God teach you himself that you should love other Christians? Now, now, let's say there are times, there are instances or maybe even seasons when you're sour and bitter and unforgiving towards other believers. Doesn't the Spirit of God himself testify to yourself that that's not right? Aren't you taught of God the way that you should treat other people? Well, this is what God wants us to do. And of course, the encouraging news is that the Thessalonians were doing this. He says there in verse 10, And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. It's not that the Thessalonians were without love. Their love toward all the brethren was well known, but they had to increase more and more in their love. So, how should we live before God? Well, of course, the first eight verses, we should live a life uh, that is sexually moral, sexually pure before God. Secondly, verses 9 and 10, we should live a life of increasing love of the brethren. Thirdly, we should live a life of work. Look at verse 11. That you aspire to live or to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Paul wants you to have an aspiration in life, an ambition. What's your aspiration? To live a quiet life. You see, that word aspiration has the idea of ambition, but quiet has the idea of peace, calm, and satisfaction. And I have to say, as much as our modern culture struggles with the first eight verses of First Thessalonians chapter 4, I think our culture struggles mightily with verse 11 as well. Because I wonder how many people really seek to live what I would call the quiet life here, as Paul describes it in verse 11. You see, in my understanding, the quiet life contradicts the hugely successful modern attraction to entertainment and excitement as i look at our modern culture today i see a culture that is addicted to entertainment and excitement and i think that that's damaging both spiritually and culturally you go up to many young people today and you suggest to them that they spend an evening reading a book what's the reaction boring And isn't that like the immediate judgment upon everything that doesn't produce a surge of adrenaline within a person? The the reaction is, oh, it's so boring. Listen, this is a serious challenge for our culture. We might even say that excitement and entertainment are like a religion for many people today. That religion has a God, the self. That religion has priests, modern celebrities, That religion has a prophet, you could say the music video channels are the prophets of that modern religion. This religion has scriptures, tabloids and entertainment news and information programs. And this religion has places of worship, amusement parks and theaters and concert halls and sports arenas. You could even say that every television and every internet connection is a little chapel. Listen, I understand the seduction of this life given over to excitement and entertainment. It seduces people into living their lives for one thing, and that's the thrill of the moment. As I just mentioned before, it's almost as if if your life doesn't have that constant surge of excitement or adrenaline, that well, then what's the use of living? But listen, those thrills are quickly over and forgotten, and the only thing that's important is the next fun thing. You see, this modern religion of excitement and entertainment, it conditions followers to ask only one question. Is it fun? It never wants to ask more important questions in life like, is it true? Is it right? Is it good? Is it godly? No, no, no. The overwhelming question is, is it fun? We need to live the quiet life so that we can take the time that we need and give the attention that is necessary to listen to God. When we live the quiet life, we can listen to God and get to know Him a lot better. So notice what he says here in verse 11, that you also aspire to live a quiet life. Just stop right! Aren't we totally going against modern culture already? In our first eight verses, where it talks about sexual purity with the love of the brethren. Now, the modern culture wouldn't have a problem with verses 9 and 10. Everybody thinks that we should be nice to one another today. But now you come into verse 11, you talk about the quiet life, weaning yourself from our culture's dependence upon these religions of entertainment and excitement. But then it moves into verse 11 to talking about minding your own business. Listen, have you ever heard the phrase, mind your own business? Did you know that that's a biblical phrase? It says it right here. You see, this means that the Christian must focus on their own life and matters instead of meddling into the lives of others. Mind your own business is a biblical idea. But not only that, you're supposed to work with your own hands, as Paul says that they commanded them. And that's recognizing the dignity and the honor of work. Work is God's plan for the progress of society and for the church. We fall into Satan's trap when we expect things to always come easily or regard God's blessing as an opportunity for laziness. It's very interesting that Paul would write this in verse 11 because I don't know if you know it or not, but in Greek society, in the Greek cultural and philosophical mindset, manual labor was despised. Who did manual labor in the Greek world? Slaves. Slaves. They thought that the better a man was, the less he should work. But look at what God did to blow that out of the water. He gave us a carpenter king. He gave us fishermen apostles. And he gave us tent-making missionaries. And so, going on to verse 12, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. You see, this is combining work With a love for the brethren. When you combine the love of our brothers with work, then you walk properly. People who are not yet Christians, he calls them here in verse 12, those who are outside, they will see our example and be influenced and become followers of Jesus Christ. And most of all, that you may lack nothing. You see, Paul completes the thought that he began way back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, that he said that we may see your face and be perfect in what, and perfect, I should say, what is lacking in your faith. You see, if they followed his teaching and example, they would lack nothing and come to the place of genuine Christian maturity. Now, as we leave verse 12 and come into verse 13, we're sort of coming into a new section. Right, verses one through eight were about sexual morality. Verses nine and ten were about loving the brethren. Verses eleven and twelve were basically about living a life of of work and and uh, not being addicted to entertainment and to uh, uh, extremes in different ways. But now, in verse thirteen. Paul's going to sort of shift his gears and start talking about something else. He's going to talk about Christians who have died. He's answering questions or theological problems for the Thessalonians. So let's get into it here, starting at verse 13. He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. He starts off by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. Now, I want you to notice, Paul was with the Thessalonians only a few weeks but yet we know from these verses that he taught them about the soon return of Jesus and they believed it earnestly. Now, this is one of the reasons why they were a church that Paul complimented so much. They believed that Jesus Christ was coming back soon. Yet after Paul left, they still knew that Jesus was coming back, but they wondered about those Christians who died before Jesus came back. Now, I know how I imagine it in my mind. I can't say that I know that it worked this way for fact, but let's just play along with this idea for a moment. Paul's there for the Thessalonian Christians for about three weeks, right? And he teaches them all kinds of stuff. And one of the things he teaches them, he says, listen, Jesus said that he could come back at any time. You be ready for the return of Jesus. And he just pointed out to him the glorious promises about the return of Jesus. And you could see the Thessalonian Christians excited about that and just wanting to see Jesus return in glory. Then, what happens? In the month or two after Paul leaves, one of the Christians dies. And then they start thinking well, we're waiting for Jesus to return. What happens to our dead brother? Does he miss out on the glorious return of Jesus? Do do they miss the victory and the blessing of Jesus' coming? And Paul says, no, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. Let me instruct you about this. And so he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. I find it very interesting that if you go through the letters of Paul, you'll notice that four times he says to Christians, don't be ignorant about something. What do you think the four things are? Well, obviously right here, don't be ignorant about those who fall asleep, especially as regards to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Don't be ignorant, if I could say it in these terms, about the rapture and the second coming of Jesus. That's what he's talking about right here. Secondly, in Romans chapter 11, he says, don't be ignorant about God's plan for Israel. Third, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, don't be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Fourth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, He says, don't be ignorant about suffering and trials in the Christian life. I find it interesting that there's a massive amount of ignorance in the Christian world about the return of Jesus, God's plan for Israel, spiritual gifts, and the place of suffering in the Christian life. These four things that Christians were specifically told by the Apostle, don't be ignorant about these things. In any regard, Paul says, don't be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, doesn't that catch you right there? You say, well, listen, people fall asleep in Bible study all the time. Why is that a problem for the Apostle Paul? No, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who have died. You see, sleep was a common way to express death in the ancient world. But among pagans, it was almost always seen as an eternal sleep. If you go through ancient writings, you'll find this pessimism regarding death. These are from some of the writings of ancient Greek philosophers. Once a man is dead, there is no resurrection. Or here's another line. Hopes are among the living. The dead are without hope. Or a third one. Suns may set and rise again, but we, once our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. Now that's cheery, isn't it? But this was the attitude regarding death in the ancient world. You slept forever. It was like an eternal dirt nap. You would never wake up from it. Now, Christians called death sleep, but they used it to emphasize the idea of rest. As a matter of fact, do you know what early Christians began to call their burial places? They called their burial places cemeteries. And you know what that means in ancient Latin? It means dormitories, or sleeping places. And I don't think we should call dormitories at the Bible college cemeteries, but it's the same basic idea. It means a sleeping place. Yet, Yet the Bible never describes the death of unbelievers as sleep. No, never. Because there's no rest, there's no peace, there's no comfort for the unbelieving in death, but the death of believers is described as sleep in the sense of it being restful and blessed. Now Paul was using idioms that were common in his day, and so he therefore referred to death as sleep, it does not prove the wrong idea of what some people call soul sleep. I don't know if you've ever heard of this doctrine known as soul sleep. That idea says that those who are dead in Christ right now are in sort of a state of suspended animation. They're not in heaven. They're not in hell. They're not on the earth. They're they're nowhere they're just sort of in suspended animation until the rapture or until the resurrection, and then at that future day, they will live again and be with God. No, 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 no. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, that it is much better to be with Christ than to be here. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we know that when a believer dies... He's instantly in the presence of the Lord. If nothing else, in his soul. His soul is not asleep. His soul is alive and in the presence of God. So he says here again, back to verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. You see, for the Christian, death is dead. And leaving this body is like laying down for a nap and waking up in glory. It's moving It's not dying. For this reason, Christians shouldn't sorrow as others who have no hope when their loved ones in Jesus die. Now listen, it's not that Christians are are emotionless when somebody dies. Oh no, we mourn, but we don't mourn like those who have no hope. Of course, we mourn the death of other Christians, but but our sorrow is like the sadness of seeing someone off on a long trip. You know you're not going to see them again for a very long time, but at the same time, you know you will see them. Of course there's a sadness. And, you know, saying goodbye to your child as they go off to college, and you say, well, I won't see them again for four years. They're going a very far distance. And there's a sadness there, but you don't have the same sadness as someone who will never see their child again. And so, yes, we mourn. But we do not mourn as those who have no hope for in verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. You see, we have more than a wishful hope of resurrection. We have the pattern of resurrection in Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, then you can be confident in the promise of resurrection for believers we have an amazing example of resurrection. And his resurrection is a promise of our own. And for the Thessalonian Christians, their troubled minds were answered by this statement. Listen, Thessalonian Christians, that believer who died, and you don't know if he's going to get to participate in the return of Jesus Christ, Paul just told you in verse 14, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? You, you don't have to worry that this friend of yours who's a believer and died, that they somehow miss out on the good things that God has in the future. No, 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 no. They will return with Jesus. But you have to admit, in verse 14, Paul words things in a very interesting way. He says here, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Now stop right here. In the previous verse, how did Paul refer to death? As sleep. But does he say in verse 14 For if we believe that Jesus slept and rose again, he doesn't say that, does he? You see, in Paul's mind, the death of the believer is like restful sleep, but not the death of our Savior. The death of our Savior was like death. There's nothing to soften it by calling it sleep because there was nothing soft or peaceful about the death of Jesus. He endured the worst that death can possibly be. And it's very much because there was no softening of death for Jesus That death is like sleep for us. But no, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. This was the confident belief of the Apostle Paul and the early Christians. We will certainly live because Jesus lives and our connection with him is stronger than death. This is why we do not sorrow as those who have no hope and why we have more than just some wishful hope that we project up to the heavens. You see, when a sinner dies, we mourn for them. But when a believer dies, we only mourn for ourselves because they are with the Lord. In the ruins of Rome, you can see the magnificent tombs of pagans. And many of them have very gloomy inscriptions. Here's an inscription from a pagan Roman tomb. Ready for this? I was not. I became. I am not. I care not. It wasn't that cheery? But this was the outlook of the ancient world. This is the outlook of the world without God. Or you can forget about the pagan tombs of ancient Rome. You can go to the murky catacombs and read glorious inscriptions of where the Christians buried their dead. You know, one of the most common Christian epitaphs from the catacombs was simply the line in peace, quoting from Psalm Four, 8, where it says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You see, we should look at death the same way that those early Christians did. But sadly, not all Christians are at this place of confidence and peace. Now listen, I don't blame any Christian for fearing dying, Right? We we may fear the process of dying. If somebody were to come to me, or if I myself would learn that I had some sort of cancer, some sort of disease, and I was in the process of dying. Nobody looks forward to the process of dying with great pleasure or joy. But it's a different thing to fear dying than it is to fear death. And no Christian should fear death. But sadly, even some Christians have, in unbelief, had the same fear and hopelessness about death. I have to say that one time, uh, Ingalil and I were on a visit uh, to to Dublin, Ireland, and we were outside of the city in a a cemetery not very far from Dublin. The the Christian cemetery was on the place called the Hill of Slain, and and there was an old tombstone. It had the date on it, 1782, and this was the inscription on the tombstone. It said, O cruel death, you may well boast. Of all tyrants, thou art the most. As all mortals you can control, the Lord have mercy on my soul. Well, That's depressing for this person buried in a Christian cemetery to say that death has control over every soul. That's not the attitude that God wants believers to have. Now, we're going to end here by just getting a start in verses 15 and 16. Next week, we'll pick it up at verses 15 and 16, but let's just get a start to complete this idea that Paul has here. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Let me say There's a lot more in that verse than we're going to get to tonight. But let's just conclude with a few thoughts. Paul here begins by saying in verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Paul emphasizes that his words here are an authoritative command. I don't know if Paul received this by direct revelation or perhaps it was an unrecorded saying of Jesus. One way or another, this came from Jesus and it did not originate with Paul. I find it very interesting. Sometimes you wonder that when Paul wrote his letters, did he know that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit? He knew it right here. Right here in verse 15, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. You see, he's trying to let us know that the living will have no advantage or no disadvantage over the dead. But together, living saints, dead saints, will all participate in this great return of Jesus Christ. But notice, Paul says, we who are alive, that means that Paul himself shared in this expectancy. It wasn't because Paul was mistaken about the promise of Jesus' return. No, Paul's saying, I want to set an an example of expectancy for all ages. Paul believed that Jesus Christ would return in his lifetime. And I would say that every godly believer since the time of Paul has also had that belief. Now, listen, it's not wrong to believe that because that's how God wants us to live, with that active expectancy of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm happy to tell you that in our day and age, I think we have more reason than ever to believe in the soon return of Jesus Christ. But I absolutely know this, that whether Jesus Christ returns before I fall asleep tonight, or whether he doesn't return for another 150 years, I know absolutely that Jesus Christ wants me to live with an expectancy of his return. Now, in giving hope to the Thessalonian Christians regarding the life to come, Paul wrote with all authority, You don't have to be in the dark. You don't have to shelter strange fears about the unknown when it comes to your eternal fate. We can know, look at it there in verse 15, by the word of the Lord that we will be resurrected and live in glory with him. As for the rest of all of this and what it means for our state and the future, we'll have to get to that next week. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for how, um, how real your word is. We, we see it tonight, Lord, touching on our lives and the real things that we deal with, Lord. These issues of sexual morality, these issues of loving one another in the body of Christ, Lord. And of course, the issues of just living an honorable and quiet and productive life before you. But Lord, especially, you, you don't neglect as well these things that can be deep and troubling fears within us about life and death in eternity in the world beyond. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for taking the punishment that we deserved. Thank you that death was truly death for you, that it might be merely sleep for us. We thank you for the greatness of your work on our behalf, Jesus, and help us to live in a way that gives honor to the great work you've done on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.